All right, guys, let's go ahead and get ready for our study this morning. So last week we began the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, we were looking at number one, and we focused on the first half. That is, man's chief end is to glorify God. Um, today we'll be addressing this idea that it's a forever glorifying and enjoying of God. Um, so let's go ahead and open with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together and come under your word uh, to confess that you are Lord and that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray that you would enable us to be faithful emissaries of the gospel, that we might invite men and women, boys and girls, that we might uh, tell them to be found in Christ, to repent and believe the gospel. We pray, Father, that we might live lives that act as useful signposts to show that there's a different place. Uh, bless us with ears that hear and hearts that meditate upon your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, pop quiz. Uh, last class, we looked at this idea of glorifying God and does creation glorify God? Did we look at some themes there? How does creation glorify God? Yeah, if a forensic scientist were to honestly evaluate the data, they would see God's fingerprints all over the thing, right? Yeah, so creation screams out and glorifies God. And then we looked at humanity as glorifying God. And the question we have for that is, can everybody glorify God? How, Walt? So there's, a, there's two paths here, right? For the believer, we glorify God by reflecting his image and we live like him, we follow his law. Most importantly, we saw last class, we can't do any of that after the fall except through Christ. It's ultimately through Christ we glorify God. But then also, as Walt points out, certainly there's that reality that even the unbelievers will glorify God's justice, right? So all of humanity will glorify God. It's a question of how. So the wicked uh, glorify God as he executes his justice on them. The Christian glorifies God grace, God's grace. And so we closed last time, and I'm glad you touched on that, Jim. Uh, Jim said we can you know, love God and, and obey his commands, right? Uh, when our girls were young, we would play Judy Rogers songs, and Judy Rogers had some unpacking of the catechism, right? And one of the questions in the, one of the songs is, how can you glorify God? For you must glorify God and you must glorify God, or, and you can glorify God by loving him and keeping his commands. And strictly speaking, of course, that is true, right? We need to love God and obey his commands. But my concern with that is, if that's all we teach children, uh, that can be scary, right? Because after the fall, we don't glorify God by loving him and keeping his commands. We call that sanctification. We do love God and keep his commands because he's given us a new nature. He's called us to be like him. 
But strictly speaking, just loving God and keeping his commands doesn't glorify him, unless we were Adam. But we'll have to get into that in later iterations of the catechism. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, the, I mean, the imperative is still there. That is, we need to, if, if you want to obey God, a great place to start is look at his law, right? It's a perfect representation of his image and character, right? Follow the Ten Commandments. But the issue is fallen creatures is, like you say, we don't follow perfectly. Yeah, I think today we often use the language of enough, right? To be enough. And uh, it's ultimately a righteousness concern. If, if we think that the righteousness all comes from us, we're doomed. Greg, I'm not going to have too many much more interactions, so don't worry about it. Sorry. Okay. So, last thing is I just want to, as, as we finish up with the first half, uh, you know, we only worship uh, we only glorify God uh, and enjoy Him now or forever only as we're united to Christ. And that's kind of where we lasted last class. So, so much for our summary of the first half of the Shorter Catechism on number one, glorifying God. Now, I hope, and what my goal last class was, was to make a compelling argument that glorifying God for sinners is ultimately about Christ, okay? after Adam and Eve and the garden and the covenant of works has been transgressed and trampled upon, you only glorify God by your vital union with Christ. And yes, we do have to obey. We all, we all just the other half of question one. Okay, so the other half, of course, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, so we're going to look at this forever nature. Okay. My thesis today is that enjoying God forever is about heaven. Although I separated these lessons about Christ and heaven due to time constraints, it's necessary to see that after the fall, these topics cannot be separated, okay? This is to fallen humanity, right? And it's, it is useful when we get into studying the doctrine of man to remember that, you know, all of human history has not been a fallen human history. It's, it's hard to think about a human history where Adam and Eve are beautiful and glorious and faithful reflectors of the image of God. But today we're going to focus on the fact that when we talk about the chief end of man post-fall, after the fall, we're talking about, well, we need Jesus to get to heaven, okay? So my thesis is enjoying God forever and glorifying God forever is about heaven. So notice that the chief end of man is certainly a present but especially an eternal end. I don't know if you ever really thought about that, but forever, uh, perhaps for those of us as we age, we, we understand that forever, like, life is going to be much longer, right? As you're young, guys, sorry to single you out, young folks, but as you're young, I, let me give you an example. I remember we were sitting at a, uh, in my mom's 1956 Plymouth convertible, sweet car, we were sitting at a stoplight on Edinger and somewhere near the Huntington Beach Mall, and there was a stoplight, and the light went on and on. And I was like maybe third grade, and I said, I was raised Catholic, I said, 
that's a long light. And my mother turned around at me with eyes blazing in glory and fire and don't use the Lord's name in vain, right? And of course she was right. Uh, however, for me as a third grader, sitting waiting for a stoplight seemed like an insurmountable amount of time. It is forever. I'm going to die waiting at this light, right? Now we know as life goes on and you have other experiences, you get accustomed to real boredom sometimes and then things go faster. Well, this idea of a eternal future is, well, if we had to draw a timeline, uh, you know, on the big scheme of things, you know, this is, we're dealing with eternity here. That's a, that's supposed to be an infinity symbol. Um, you know, we've got this tiny little bit of time that we live on this earth. And we obsess so much about this and the catechism is pointing us to a reality that is much longer than that, okay? So man's chief end is especially an eternal end. Now this represents a couple of my gripes with us as Calvinists, so I'm going to be critical of our tradition. First, I love it, but it needs to be said. We can have a tendency to talk about glorifying God and we might have a tendency to connect the dots to Jesus and our glorification by our triune God. Okay, I'm sorry, we might uh, have a tendency to forget to connect the dots to Jesus and our glorification by our triune God. Secondly, many of us have suffered trauma and uncertainty having experienced daisy theology, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. I went forward in, in earnestness. I promised I would be obedient. I promised I would trust. I sinned again, he loves me not, right? And that kind of theology can, do I, you know, it comes down to the question Luther has, or related to Luther's statement, Luther says, I want to know that I have a gracious God, right? Well, you don't know that, and that can lead to some real theological trauma. So, for those of us that have come out of those traditions, we focus almost solely on eternity past when we discuss predestination, and we just want to talk about tulip, because we have different flowers in our tradition. That's what some people have called the cage stage of Calvinism, that time when it might be better for us to be locked up in a cage until we can learn to speak the truth in love. And when, that's, that when we're in our cage stage folk period, we tend to focus only on the pre in predestination, what happens in eternity past. And that's, of course, because that's denied by people who practice the daisy theology. Now, of course, we're not wrong. God is clear concerning things concerning predestination. Now, we need to say this is holy mystery and we don't get behind the gears and figure it out. There's no access behind the curtain on that. But what God has revealed is clear and we need to testify to it. God is clear in his word concerning foreknowledge, election, and his decrees. My complaint, however, is that we contend to lose sight of the goal of predestination. There is a destination to predestination, namely heaven right? We need to have our minds blown with what is revealed concerning the foreloving, electing love of God for a people to dwell with him forever in the beatific vision where all things are made right. Okay, my gripe concerning our tradition is over. Now let's get into some of the biblical rationale for this idea that we have a forever goal, right? And that's talking about our eschatology, right? the end things, right? What, what is the, the goal, the end, the 
uh, purpose for humanity. Well, God made us to glorify and enjoy Him, not for a season, not for a short while, but as the Catechism rightly says, forever, forever, beyond this period where, uh, you know, history ends and eternity begins from our perspective anyhow. This is to say that man was created for a heavenly end because heaven is the eternal realm. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. And that forever nature of our chief end will, be most, will mostly be in that seventh day where God enters into his eternal rest and invites Adam and Eve to join him. Now, you guys remember in the Genesis passage, uh, there's this, you know, God has a pattern of the creation week. Every day there was evening and morning the first day. Evening and morning, the second day. Evening and morning, dot, 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 the sixth day. And on the sixth day, God makes the crowning achievement of his creation. He makes Adam and Eve in his own glory, a faithful reflection of his nature and being. Not in a one-to-one basis, but in a reflective basis. But on the seventh day, there's no speech to this morning and evening or evening and morning. Rather, it says God entered his rest. This is what the text says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So there's no reference to evening and morning. And I don't know if you thought about this. It's so standard for our existence but our calendars, our days, our work days, our work weeks, they're all in reference to stuff that the sun and the moon are doing, right? It's said that probably the Babylonians first came up with a calendar based on seven-day weeks, and that has to do with it takes seven days for a moon to enter another phase, right? All of our time reference are in reference to this idea of evening and morning blank day, okay? But the seventh day is not that kind of day. It's an eternal day. God enters into his holy habitation. And keep in mind that there's no need for sun or moon in the new heavens and the new earth because, of course, the Lamb of God is the light. So note that our God is gracious, however, in that the original created realm of heaven where God will dwell with his people, it is still offered, right? So we have this pattern where there's the creation days, and for our purposes today, I'm not interested in getting into the details on that, but this seventh day is an eternal day, right? And we're going to see that, well, this seventh day, eternal day, isn't entered into by Adam, because Adam doesn't do the works of God. Adam doesn't reflect the glory of God, and therefore there is, I don't know, an angel with a fiery sword saying, none shall pass. You shall not get into this seventh day glorious rest, this Sabbath rest of God. But remember, the Bible goes on after Genesis 3.15, or after you know, 3.14, right? It's an amazing thing that history doesn't fully and finally end right there. God holds out the opportunity that somehow, of course, we know it's through a Redeemer, the seventh day rest of God is open. It's an invitation for people to repent and to believe, right? Hebrews 4, 8 through 10 affirms this. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, by the way, Joshua leads them into the promised land, which is a picture of heaven, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there, you benefit uh, from the bounty of the land and you're not doing the sweat of your brow. All of that curse language, right? God promises right after the fall, Adam, hey, you're going to have to get your food by the sweat of your brow. You don't just go pick fruit off the tree and enjoy it. No, you're going to have to labor. It's going to be hard. It's going to be toilsome. Land flowing with milk and honey is a picture of, hey, somebody already dug your wells. Hey, it's flowing with milk and just go grab it and go, right? Um, so that, that picture is there, right? If Joshua gave them that rest, this is what the text says, Hebrews 4, 8 through 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for his, from his. So the idea here is, is that God provides an alternative means of achieving Sabbath rest, of entering into heavenly glory and resting with his creator. In addition to this, and I'm going to wear you guys out with some of the data on this in my view, um, but stick with me. Um, in addition, the presence of the tree of life, right? We have a tree of life in the garden. This is a beautiful representation of the tree. And we have a, the tree of life present in the new heavens and the new earth, that seventh-day Sabbath rest of God. What does that suggest to us, right? The presence of the tree of life in both the garden and the new heavens and the new earth point to a heavenly goal for mankind and that it was held out in the garden and that it's held out in the new heavens and the new earth. Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We move from the first creation in the beautiful habitation of uh, the garden to the new heavens and the new earth, the final temple, as it were. Revelation 22 says, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. Now, what I want you to see from these passages that we've looked at is that before the message of salvation from sin and death was preached to mankind from Genesis 3.15 until today, God was calling Adam and Eve into heaven itself, the place of the full and eternal basking in God's glory and reflecting it back to him and the cosmos. God was calling Adam and Eve into the beatific vision the full enjoyment of God where we shall see him as he is. So, at the beginning of the creation, right, the idea is uh, Adam's called to heaven, right? And we see that from Adam acting like God. We see that from the tree being present in the new heavens and the new earth as well as in the garden. Um, we also see that in Romans 5. We're not going to get into that today. Um, but that's the call, right? Another way of saying all of this is that before the fall into sin and death, heaven was the goal for humanity. 
glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is the call for humanity. Um, you know, Gerhardus Voss, a Reformed theologian, he taught at Princeton, uh, he famously said, eschatology precedes soteriology. That is, eschatology, heaven, precedes soteriology, our doctrine of salvation. Uh, So the idea is that, you know, the goal, man's heavenly goal is initial. It comes about before even our teaching on how we get saved, okay? So that's a, that's a useful thing. And so we're going to, as we look at this today, uh, I've kind of, here's your handout for the day. You got some circles. Um, it's important to think about systems of thought in terms of what we think about God, what we think about the world what the goal is, what the purpose is. So we're going to unpack this a little bit, okay? Um, so obviously what I'm defending is theism, right? Uh, theism is the idea that God exists and God creates. God is separate from creation, that God is active in his creation. We can have a doctrine of providence. That is, you can pray to God. God will answer your prayers. He cares. He's intimately involved with his creation, Okay, that's the general idea of theism, and obviously I'm arguing for Christian theism today. Uh, one of my professors, he's, he's started lecturing, and he, he calls theism twoism, right? There's the idea that there is God and creation, and these are separate. That's not the GOP, that's God, sorry. <laughs> that's a real big mistake there on my behalf. Um, and, and shame on you if you guys were getting excited about that. Um, so we can throw the Democrats in there too for that purpose. But um, in watch out, as a side note, watch out when we idolize our political ideologies and try to put them in the way there. That was totally a Freudian slip. Okay, um, so theism, um, uh, it's twoism. There are two separate things. There's God and there's creation. Um, now, when we talk about the eschatology of theism, right, that is, uh, what, what's the end time scheme? What's the view of history? How does it work out? I've drawn kind of a timeline for us as humanity, right? God exists outside of creation forever, but he is pleased to make his creation, and it has a timeline built into it, right? There's a definitive beginning, right? There's a time when, you know, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bam, right? And it happens. There is a time, and there will be a day when God judges all men, right? And that last day will come and history will end as we know it and perceive it and see it. But then there's the eternal realm. And that's what we've been talking about is the seventh day, the Sabbath, heaven, the chief end of man, right? That we enjoy God and glorify him forever. This is the general eschatology of theism, right? That there's a world stage which will serve its purpose purpose of an all-wise, holy, all-knowing God, and then we will enter into an eternal realm. But there are competing themes, right? And, you know, increasingly pantheism, uh, what my professor calls oneism, that views everything as God, right? Pan is all, theism is God. Um, now, for the pantheist, of course, you'd, they'd probably be comfortable arguing with a small g God. Uh, I recently had a student who was a Hindu. She says, no, we view ourselves as monotheist and kind of interesting. I'd never, I, but I guess if you're a monist or you think all reality is one, 
Uh, I, I guess maybe you could make that argument. But within monism, there's just, or pantheism, there's one thing, right? It's not two-ism. There's one thing. Maybe you are a little piece of the one, but the individual is subsumed by the whole, right? And when we look at pantheistic religions, you know, oftentimes, uh, you know, the scheme for history uh, is not going to be a linear one where there's a beginning and an end, but maybe it's repetitive, right? And so, of course, we could see in here ideas like reincarnation, right? That you have an opportunity to be uh, reincarnated, to take on flesh again, right? Get a second chance, and maybe you get better and better, okay? Um, so that's sort of the general eschatology of pantheistic views. And then, of course, we've got atheism. And atheism, of course, is arguing there's no God or gods, right? Um, two of the most common forms of atheism is just sort of blatant materialism uh, in the language of Oingo Boingo, what you see is what you get. Um, I mean, that, that's it, right? You can verify things by your taste, touch, smell, etc. Empirical knowledge is all there is, right? Um, and then probably for most Westerners, the most common form of atheism has been dialectical materialism through Karl Marx, right? And so that's the idea. Marx sort of borrows uh, his timeline from Hegel, and Hegel argues that there's a dance that goes on in the world, and that dance, of course, is, uh, what is it, thesis, there's an idea, and there's antithesis, uh, and then there's a synthesis, right? So someone comes up with an idea, someone counters it, and then somebody makes a Frankenstein being taking bits and bobs of both of them and says, this is the new thing. And then this becomes the sort of new orthodoxy or the thesis, right? And it's interesting as far as it goes. But what ends up happening with Hegel is he argues that this goes on throughout human history. Right? And Hegel basically has his uh, view of history hijacked or his dialectic hijacked by Karl Marx. In Hegel's view, he says there is an eschatology to, uh, to history. That is, we're moving on, getting better and better. And by the way, people argue for the idea of progress, thanks to Hegel, perhaps. Um, people argue, hey, we're going to eventually get to pure spirit after all this struggle, after all this mess. Right? Now, of course, Karl Marx takes this and he empties it of spirit because Marx has no room for that. Uh, and he says, look, the goal is through the bloody path of history, we're going to eventually get to communism, right? So these are common sort of alternate eschatologies that are viewed in the world, okay? Um, now, interestingly enough, if you ever hear this language, right side of history, I always scratch my head if you're being consistent with your atheism. Um, I mean, as a Christian, I can say the right side of history is God wins. Christ will be glorified. God will be magnified. It'll be good for God's people, and God will receive glory and enjoyment. We'll receive enjoyment. God will receive glory. Um, but that's because that's I'm a Christian. I, I know these things. But to tell you the truth, in terms of the the minutia as we go along here, I don't know what the right side of history is, right? I mean, I know what God's commands are, etc., but that's really a really boastful statement if you don't have any real objective standard, right? If you're just saying that there's gonna be struggle, anti-struggle, and a synthesis of struggles, and somehow we're just gonna to get to this point on the right side of history, that always makes me scratch my head. 
Um, as far as politics is concerned, I usually am like, I, I don't, God wins. Okay, so, you know, th these are the, probably the most common ideas that we interact with, right? But as a Christian, we're saying, no, there's God, there's not God, uh, this not God reflects God in, in many ways, but it's not God. It never will be God. However, God does call us into that day, and that is the goal of humanity from the get-go and that God graciously extends to us now. Okay. Another way of saying this is that glorification is man's goal. Man's chief end is to be glorified, right? That's, that's the goal. It is, of course, the end of the golden chain of salvation. Recall Romans 8. Romans 8, what is it? Oh, we could go ahead and start with uh, 28. And we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he uh, justified, he also glorified, right? So we've got, we've, we call this the golden chain of salvation, right? These cannot be broken. So predestination, calling, uh, justification, and glorification. All of these objective acts of God, what God does to us for our good, right? Uh, oftentimes, uh, when we have the woe is me's, and we all have them from time to time, when we're having our pity parties and questioning God and saying, why do I have to go through this, that, or the other? Consider for a moment these objective acts of God. God has predestined you. He's called you. He's justified you. And he's going to glorify you, right? God will do this. He will make you a new, totally new person that you reflect the image of Christ perfectly in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so in that sense, it's gonna be all right. As we have angst and anxiety and worries about tests and child rearing and work and aging and death and all the mess of life, God will glorify you, okay? That is the promise. Glorification is what we shall experience when we're in the new heavens and the new earth with our resurrected bodies. It's there in that place that we shall fully enjoy our salvation. There'll be no evil. There'll be no more sea. There'll be no death, no tears, no disgrace, no pain. There'll be nothing to cry about or be hurt by. We'll have a new home, a new body, a new society. And we will know the right side of history there. We will have a new lifestyle. All of this will reflect God's glory and will be our greatest delight. It's in heaven that we will glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Forever. Now, Hebrews would remind us, uh, whoopsie, we'll be perfectly united to God. Revelation 21, 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, 
and God himself will be with them as their God. We will enter into his joy. Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Furthermore, being in heaven, in God's presence, is described as a wedding feast where the church is the bride and Christ is the broom. Ah, groom, sorry. Uh, that's Matthew 22 and Revelation 19. This is what enjoying God forever will be like. We will perfectly glorify and enjoy him. Now at this point, someone always says, okay, this sounds nice. But the fact of the matter is, is we're in an industrial park in Las Vegas, and I'm kind of bummed because the Raiders lost. Um, we often say, sure, heaven sounds fun, but we're not in heaven now, are we? It's a little difficult for me to enjoy God when my laundry at home is dirty and the washing machine is broke to boot and I don't have the means of paying for a repairman and I'm all thumbs and can't fix it myself. Maybe you have a family member who has a difficult, maybe even terminal illness and they're not recovering. Maybe you're a student and you can't afford your school books, but you want to do well, and doing well requires you to have access to texts. Beloved, there's all kinds of problems, right? And we all love to sing, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, right? Uh, well, there is someone who knows the trouble you've seen. But the question I have for you is this. If that is all we can see, if that's all we can see, knowing that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and our gracious Redeemer has actually accomplished the means of giving us the new heavens and the new earth, that we will be saved finally and fully at the last day. If that's all you see is all your issues and your problems, the question I have for you is, do you have faith? Remember that faith has two aspects, right? And some people, it's maybe unfair, but there's something to it. Some people have said, well, there's Pauline faith, right? That idea that basically faith is a hand that receives the grace of God, right? By that faith, we receive the fact that Christ has fully atoned for our sins, and by that faith, we receive that Christ has fully provided a perfect righteousness for us, and by faith, we receive that, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, and God takes an eraser and erases our sins, and we rejoice in that. That's certainly true, and I think as Protestants, we tend to get that idea of faith. At least as Protestants, we ought to get that idea of faith. It's very Pauline. But beloved, sometimes I think we forget this faith in the sense of Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Sometimes we can forget that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as the author of Hebrews would remind us. Perhaps we could interpret that passage to say, faith is the firm confidence in the reality of heaven. Do you see yourself as having faith in both of these senses? Not only justifying faith, but faith that the heavenly reality which Christ has accomplished for me is mine by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. So the question always comes, great, tell me what I can do now. Um, how do we enjoy God here and now? Well, first, I would suggest know who you are.
you know, you see the, the bumper stickers, not of this world bumper stickers. I guess that is a band. I apologize. My, I think, is it a band? Not of this world? I don't know. It's, it's a Christian bumper st- Not of this world? It's a, just a saying? Okay. I, I see bumper stickers all over the place. Okay, so it's just, a, it's just a saying based on scripture. Okay, good. Okay. I figured it was a band. I got to apologize. My, uh, not a band. Okay, not a band. Shucks. Okay, well, good. Now I know. It could be. Um, well, it's, that's a good reminder, right? It's a real good reminder to, to, to know that we're not of this world. But keep in mind, you're not only negatively not of this world. You're also positively of another world. Ephesians 2.6 tells us that he raised us up with him, that is God raises us up with Christ, and seats us with him in the heavenly places. Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a positive reality. Not only are we negatively not of this world, we're positively citizens of heaven. Now, spiritually, Paul tells us we're in heaven itself in some way. Do you see that? Do you see that? You can't see it with your eyes, but can you see it? Can you, going back to Hebrews 11, have faith in the firm, faith is the firm confidence in the reality of heaven and that you're seated there? Ephesians 1.13 and 14, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Um, You can't see this with your eyes. You are heaven's child, however, and you are seated there. God has given you his spirit as a seal and a promise that he will come and he will give you his heavenly inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now you participate in the glory and enjoyment of heaven in a partial way. It's true. We're still in this world. We're still in an industrial complex in Las Vegas. But beloved, you are not of this world. Your identity isn't associated with a zip code. It's not associated with your culture, finally. Certainly our cultural iterations and where we come from and our backgrounds and languages do say something about us. But our final reality is that we are united to our Christ, right? that we are in the Lord Jesus, and that we have a different hometown. Our hometown is heaven. That is where you are from by faith. Where your Savior is, you shall go. By our union with Christ, we commune with God. How do we do that? Well, when the word is preached, what are you getting there? Well, you are getting... Jesus, the Word of God, sent down from heaven, right? The Word being inscripturated, you're feeding upon, you're feeding upon the meals of your true hometown, right? You are feeding upon Christ and His benefits. That is what happens as we come and we hear the Word preached, as you individually read the Word, as you have the sacraments administered. His voice is His Word, and his sacraments are his kiss, as pastor often reminds us. His word communicates grace to us as it tells us what we are to believe and what we are to do. 
His sacraments give us the only biblical pictures of Christ. Both his word and sacraments feed us spiritually as we attend to them in faith. Now, we also enjoy God's presence as we communicate with him by prayer. We thank him for his grace. We pour out our petitions. We offer our thanks to him and offering praise. That is, we pray to God. And in our model, of course, God cares. God answers prayers. He's actively involved with his creation. Now, of course, we know that prayer is not treating God like a genie to get what we want, but more and more we're bringing our wills in alignment with His will, Thy will be done, and that internal transformation occurs. So, our question as we end today is this. If man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, and that's obviously a very theistic statement. God is God, we're not. He has authority, right? Uh, you know, one thing that strikes me, and this is just an aside, uh, is in all other forms of how we're going to have an eschatology or how we view the world, uh, autonomy is really written big. And think about that. When you talk to your friends, your neighbors, your family members, and when you auto, whoopsie, know me. Um, auto means self, right? Like you got an automatic transmission. It's a self-shifting transmission. Namos is law. And by the way, isn't that kind of the problem that we encountered right here at the garden? Adam and Eve wanted to be a law to themselves. And so when we look at different views of reality, whether it's pantheism or atheism, at the end of the day, what we're really looking at is naked autonomy, right? And it's easy for us to judge them, but we know that even in our own hearts, we suffer from naked autonomy. Prayer, of course, as a means of grace, uh, is a means for us to extinguish our autonomy as we say, thy will be done, thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, right? What is that? This kingdom, we are praying that heaven would come down, that that last day final reality that God would wrap the historical drama up and bring us into his presence. That's what we're praying for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. So the question I have for us when we close is, shall we therefore go and make our chief end something other than the enjoyment of God or the glory of God? Beloved, no. Our goal in life, our chief end, is not to have a nice house or a nice car. It's not to have a good education. It's not to have lots of money. It's not to have the so-called perfect husband or wife or the Christian family. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we need to remember that there's no eternal joy apart from that. Eternal joy, forever joy, comes by glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. What we've seen in this basic thing is we've seen Christ and heaven. We've seen that heaven precedes Heaven comes before, the promise of heaven comes before the fall. That's the call for mankind through all of history. God graciously does not end the whole thing right there way back then. He sends forth a gospel, a promise of a warrior who will come and crush the head of the serpent, even though it does injure the Savior. So we've seen it's about heaven, but we don't get to heaven apart from Christ. So it's about Christ and heaven Short of catechism number one is about Christ in heaven. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that you have invited us, indeed commanded us, that all men everywhere ought to repent and believe the gospel. Uh, grant us that grace. Grant us uh, the diligence to be faithful planters of seed, that where we work, where we go to school, and even in our own hearts, that we would set forth Christ and him crucified as the solution for a dying world. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.